This podcast is brought to you by Tropos, weather and forecast for humans. No dew points or ads, just information you can act on. Get it now at troposweather.com or search for Tropos on the iOS app store. Yeah, never recorded in Boston before. That's right. right. We've done a couple episodes in San Francisco, but never. I like it here. Mm. You know what I don't like here? Your roads. They confuse me. Oh, they're horrible. I was coming here in the cab not 20 minutes ago, and I'm not like a driving scientist (laughs) or anything, but. (laughs) Sure. I know that we made You've got like a we made associate's like, degree in driving, not like a PhD. I didn't get I didn't finish the courses. Okay. But I know for a fact that we took four left turns. <laughs> and everywhere else yeah. in America, that's just something you don't do because <laughs> right. it's unnecessary. Right. You can just go straight. Right. Right. But not here. No. So that was fun. It's like you have to know where the wormholes let out and like It makes no sense. No. I I, I don't get like, if I'm driving, I don't think I come further than, like, uh, Cambridge. I think that's as far in as I'll drive. Anything past that, it's like, I will take a cab or uh, hopefully, like, jump on public transportation at some point. Cambridge, is that west of here? Is that I don't know. It's a place. No. I don't know. Do you know I where it is in relation here? Northwest. Across the river? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Nine years I've lived here. <laughs> I've been here a couple times. <laughs> Uh, so what's up? You're in Boston. Yeah. Boston for the week. Yeah. Can cool. stay at the Hotel Fontenot. Yeah. Should be pretty yeah, exciting. Okay. <laughs> I meant to ask you, did you actually tell Irvy that like I'm going to be here for like nine days? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I just wanted to follow up. <laughs> no, yeah. No, I didn't. I'm not. It's not going to be a surprise that you're like in her second bedroom. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. No, she's aware. Okay. She's actually getting a cast right now. Oh, right. Turn, turns out she fractured her foot. We thought that she was fine, but she fractured her foot. So Are I was you saying on... that medical science in Bermuda is just is not quite up to snuff. <laughs> not quite. Yeah. Uh, your episode with Tony was awesome, by the way. I was cracking up. What, my favorite thing is hearing things that I said or things that I've thought through the filter of Tony. That's that's always it's always a lot of fun. <laughs> That was interesting for me because I felt like I had to be the Gordon in that show. Yeah. And he was the yeah. Mark. And I had yeah. to, like, reel him in. Yeah. So last week, um, last week I was in Bermuda. We took a cruise, and it was awesome. But then when we were in Bermuda, we I wrecked a moped. So I was like, I'm not going to make it sound more interesting than it was. I just, like, wiped out on a moped. Um, but my wife was on the back of the moped as a passenger, and so when we crashed, like I got some road rash on my arm, but it actually, the moped like fell on her left leg. So it, like busted up her knee and we thought her, we got, we went to like the hospital and we thought everything was fine. Um, up until literally today, we thought everything was fine. Um, we just thought it was like some springs, but we went to the doctor yesterday cause he was still hurting and they redid the x-rays and, uh, yeah, she fractured her foot. So as far as I'm, I'm going to have to keep checking my phone because as far as I know, she's like, she's on her way to the ER right now. Ah, that sounds rough. There's a lot of tiny bones in your yeah. foot. It's just one though? Oh. No idea. Jeez. Literally no idea. Um, no, I've talked to her a couple times today, but it's like, you know, she's been in a boot and stuff 
and she can move around pretty good. We'll see how if the boot helps her or the cast helps her, hurts her moving around. But. Well, I'm happy to pull my own weight. I can help out wherever I can. Yeah, yeah. Should we get her a bell? She can yell. She's plenty. She's got this figured out already. It's okay. been it's been a long week. <laughs> uh, no, she'll be fine. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm gonna do Fourth of July. Go see the Red Sox. I mean the 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 first place Houston Astros really tomorrow. Are the Red Sox in last place? Uh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Bye I like one sided games. Yeah. They're they're like ten games below five hundred. We're <laughs> like ten games above five hundred. I'm excited to boo Sandoval. Oh yeah. And it sounds like a, I probably won't be the only one. <laughs> I have no idea. I I'm not following Boston Red Sox like at all, other than just kind of like when I have to go see my uncles and I get to like make fun of them for you know spending that much money with that little output. <laughs> I think I said before that our current third baseman, Matt Duffy, who was playing off the bench until May, now has more RBIs and more home runs than Pablo Sandoval. He's also only That's making right. like $500,000 this year. Right. Minimum. Because he's a rookie. Yeah. Sure. So what's up, man? How's your week been? Quick? Yeah. It's, you know, oh, yeah. It's when, only Thursday. Yeah. When you travel midweek, like yeah. my whole week was just consumed with like, am I forgetting anything mm-hmm. before traveling? Mm-hmm. The flight was good. Yeah, uh, direct flights are amazing. Yeah, we were talking about that at lunch. Actually, we were having a conversation about that. Like, um, I was saying that one of the nice things about like having a layover is that if you have a layover, then there's always that possibility that you can like get off, grab some food, get back on the plane, as opposed to like if you don't time your direct flight right, especially like coast to coast stuff, if you don't time that right, you can get stuck in this weird position. Like when Tony and I flew back from San Francisco, it was like our flight was at this weird time where we had already eaten and weren't really hungry. But if we didn't eat then, then we wouldn't be able to eat until like 2 AM. And so it was like, I guess we have to eat because the food on the plane sucks. And so trying to figure that out. Just end to end. It's so much better. Like I'm going to be uncomfortable either way, even if I get a chance to get off and stretch my legs halfway. So yeah, That's true. I might as well just be crammed into a seat and just get it over with as quick as possible. Yeah. I tried to work the whole time. Yeah. Like seat in front of me recline because (laughs) horrible human beings, literally the most despicable human beings recline their seat. Yeah. Just sociopaths. Like (laughs) that's who reclines their seat on airplanes. Um, Trying to work and just like jammed up. Yeah. Well, you're also six, five. Which right, I'm not sure if people understand, but but like, yeah, there's just nowhere being, for my elbows to go. Yeah, so being, like, yeah, I'm just like jammed up. You can't see me right now, but it's just like I'm like <laughs> bending all of my joints. Right, and being like, being six five on a plane is much different than being like five ten on a plane. So totally different experience. Even like I'm six six foot six foot one somewhere in there, and even then it's like I'm right at that point where it's a toss up on whether or not like my knees are going to be in complete pain by the time we get off because of like short leg space yeah without without very careful rejiggering like my kneecaps are right against the seat Mm -hmm. so when they recline without notice Mm -hmm. it's just like crushing them more things that make me angry what are you working on this week Uh, i've been doing some very very heavy refactoring oh yeah that's right routing Um, and testing url routing Mm -hmm. yeah and trying to test that how's that going (laughs) I've discovered the magic of fakes. Oh, yeah. And currently, my URL, URL, I cannot 
I can't say URL. URL. <laughs> URL router. <laughs> the initializer now takes seven objects. Nice. Because sure. it has to do all kinds of shit, and I want to be able to test it. Yeah. Are you doing that in addition to, like, one of the things I've done is, like, create an initializer that has all those values? In Swift, you can do this a different way. But, like, create an initializer that has all those values and either giving them, like, in Swift, you could give them default values, right, so that you don't have to fill them in. But then you can fill them in for if you need to and then also if you're testing. And that, or in objective C, I've done that where I've had like an initializer that takes all the, the properties, but then create a factory method that prefills those properties. I could, but in this case, I don't want, like, they're kind of such foundational things, like a manage object context mm-hmm. and a thing that, I, that conforms to like a presentation context, mm-hmm. which is really just a view controller that knows how to show other view controllers modally. I don't want that class being responsible for setting those up for the rest of the application. So you're actually using dependency injection. You didn't just introduce it into the interface in order to add your testing. No. Like the app delegate is literally going to stand up all the things we need from the get-go and then pass references into the the router to let it do its thing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's working out well. It's a lot of work. Yeah, well, we still have a lot of web views in our app that have just been in there for a long time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and where... There's a route, for instance, where it's already assuming that a very particular web view is up and you're in something. And so it calls into the app and says, like, Mm -hmm. connect to Facebook. So we connect to Facebook. And then depending on how that goes in the completion block, we call back into that web view and evaluate JavaScript against it to let it know, like, what it should do next. Wow. So pretty much the whole flight was, like, figuring out some way of handling that. Ended up coming with uh, coming up with, like, a web view coordinator that's just, like, this Hmm. one thing that lives. And it's just whenever we show a web view in the app then at least like that thing is holding onto a stack of web right. views and it's like, right. here's the active one. We can, I can you know, make a search and it's like the one I'm expecting. And it's just like one class was like, hey, run some JavaScript against this web view. Huh. That sounds intense. It's going okay. <laughs> <laughs> sounds intense. I had a question. I don't remember. Something about fakes. Oh, is this in Swift? Yeah. Yeah. So you're using like, you like created protocols for all your things and now you just got like, test thing and real thing yeah except for the manage object context because really i'm just trying to make sure that it's getting save called so on it just creating a i just subclassed sub? it oh i see i mm-hmm. just subclassed it and override save and i just set this bool in the test subclass it's just mm-hmm. like did save yeah so i can just assert that it got called that's basically a partial mock is what uh yeah you've essentially created a partial mock with more overhead which i think is fine i i, I do i'm not just saying that i really think it's fine because you can't you can't really do mocks in swift because there's an actual type system so you can't just say it's an id and don't worry about it Mm -hmm. i think that probably makes the most sense for doing that and also like since the code is actually kind of using the manage object context in ways that i don't care about except for the saving like Mm -hmm. core data has all these conditions it's like i need to be able to find a model and i need a persistent store coordinator that knows about that model and stuff and i was like "Eh." like if i made my own object that conformed to a protocol i'd have to do so much more i think instead of just subclassing it right so in that case, whatever. Yeah, I think that's fair. How's it been feeling though? What are you using for testing? XE test. Just spare XE test. How's that been? It's been fine. fine. Like once once you kind of wrap your head around it. At first, I was gonna I thought I was gonna have to use a lot of expectations, and I have yet to actually need an expectation. What do you mean fakes for asynchronous oh. mm-hmm. stuff? Because in this case, like the methods that would be asynchronous on the real object just sort of synchronously set a property right. in my test object. So right. it's fine. Yeah. 
I think that's the biggest thing about because I've done that. Um, I don't remember. It may have been that project that we worked on together where we had there was like some asynchronous stuff that we were trying to test. And whatever I did, I like created a mock object or a fake to insert into it. And I was just able to turn on and off the asynchronous behavior. So I just like set a bool on the thing saying that it should act synchronously or asynchronously. Mm. And then by doing that, I was able to pass it in and make my assertions synchronously. And then also pass it in and have it act asynchronous to ensure that whatever asynchronous behavior this thing needed to handle. Right? Like Oh, I wasn't wasn't that the it, um, it may have been the cache the thing replay that I did. cache. Yeah, the replay yeah. cache. That's that's what I think it was. And and I don't remember why I needed to turn it back on, but I remember there being a thing where I wanted to double check that the fact that it was asynchronous wasn't going to screw anything up. Oh, is that I wanted to make sure that it performed all the callbacks on the main thread. So I told the thing to be asynchronous, right? This, whatever this thing, probably a network client or something. I told it that I wanted to be asynchronous. And then when it, when it was asynchronous, it would kick off stuff on a background queue. So then I hand this to this cache thing, whatever the hell I was testing and asserted that when it got the callback, I just did a check to see if it was on the main thread and then made an expectation that, you know, expect is on main thread to eventually be true Mm -hmm. basically. And that let me, because I was forcing it to a background thread and then calling the callback inside my fake network client thing, then that thing that I was testing forced it back to the main thread, which caused my expectation to pass. It's kind of an interesting way. It's like, you know, I think fakes are awesome. I really prefer using fakes to mocks or stubs in tests. It feels some. It feels cleaner, right? Like you're not like you never like with using mocks like um, OC mock is I think what we typically use. Using OC mock worked, but we we always ran into problems. I felt like it, it just feels like magic. Like yeah. there's a whole well, lot of runtime swizzle- hackery going yeah, on down there. Method swizzling and crap like that. And so when your tests start failing because of a like you didn't clear a mock in one place and it's causing yeah. some other test over here to fail, it's just a nightmare. As opposed to just hand this thing in, you know, I think it makes your API design better too, because you get more modular, smaller objects than all. This is probably a rehash of whatever episode we did that week <laughs> that I did that work. Yep. But, but, you know, you end up with smaller objects that are really responsible for one thing because you want to keep them small so you can fake them real easy, you know? So fakes for testing was actually one of the things that Apple talked about in that protocol oriented right. Right, right, programming right. talk. Which is surprising. They don't talk about testing too often. I think that's going to change. I really do. Like, I don't know. I've probably been saying this crap for years. But, um... Well, I mean, we finally got that UI testing library that we talked about, like, in the first episode. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Having that is huge. It's the one thing that really makes me want to develop for iOS 9 today. We just started a project, and because we're trying to ship it as soon as possible... And so because of that, we're doing iOS 8, and I'm kind of bummed out about it because I would love to try full TDD with unit tests and then also write acceptance tests. I'm making air quotes with my fingers, but like whatever the hell you want to call these things, these UI level tests kind of as overarching feature specs. I'd yeah. love I'd love to do that, but yeah. 
So I think our goal is that we'll we'll write tests, unit tests, ship this first version, come back, start working on kind of post-MVP stuff. Hopefully one of those is that the timeline is going to match up so that we'll have a release with iOS 9, in which case we'll update to Swift 2.0. Do you know if the UI testing works? Does it have to be base? Like, does it have to be the base SDK version or the deployment target, I mean? Or does it just have to run on iOS 9? Yeah, I think it just has to run on iOS 9. Yeah, so that's you, my you can assumption. Have, you can have them in an 8 and 9, but right. you'll never know if it's working correctly on 8. Right. <laughs> Which, you know. But it's like... <laughs> probably. I mean, there's not... Yeah. We have we have QA people for that. Oh, that's fancy. <laughs> so... <laughs> no. Whatever. Yeah. Jerk, like, I'm, the other, <laughs> other day, I'm like, I'm trying to get clarification about some in-app purchase rule and i'm like asking around people that i know and i ask you and you're like oh i don't know normally i just ask our app store rep but i'm not sure I can get that. it's like cool that's not helpful at I all I was sending that that's not helpful at all <laughs> that's cool yeah i've been um we were just talking about this offline not offline i guess out in the outside outside this room away from microphones anyway um but Looking at because um, I'm I'm starting to write this same network stack that I've written like a million times, except for in Swift, and hoping to walk away with something that's going to be more extractable. You know, something. The goal is, I think, to build something that works really nice with Argo, like build a network stack on top of Argo that we can pull out and then reuse from here on in. And so the first thing I'm doing is like looking at. Okay, well, I got to start stubbing the network, and so I found um, Sam Sophus his DVR thing, which looks cool and super lightweight, and again uses dependency ejection. It uses a subclass of NSURL. So the way it works is you write a client that instead of just instantiating the default session for NSURL session, you want to write your client thing. So his example is like a mixed panel client. So you write the mixed panel client so that it accepts a NSURL session on initialization. And then you just default that to the default session, right? Easy. Mm -hmm. But then it lets you, inside your tests, he has this NSURL session subclass that's just called session with no um, suffix, with no prefix. And you can pass it like a cassette name, which is a weird mixed metaphor, honestly. Like, if there's one criticism I have just off the bat, is that so he he's he's basing it's called cassette because he based it off VCR. Yep. So VCR is an old web, older kind of web mocking framework, and it uses cassettes, right? Because VCR cassettes that makes sense. Yep. DVR cassettes doesn't make <laughs> like fine. Hold on, hold I'll go I, with it. I, I, I can I can bust his balls about his <laughs> his skeuomorphic method naming yeah, right, right now, yeah. uh, but so so you hand it you hand it basically the name of a cassette which is just like what JSON it should load, and then when it performs a request it just returns that JSON, right? Uh, to the best of your knowledge, that's basically how it works. You perform a request and it just returns whatever JSON it was handed, or does uh, it have to match something? I think right now it's only matching on the method and URL and not the headers yet. And it just replays 
whatever's saved and then calls the completion block right. with all the things that it did before. Right. Uh, but as far as like the matching on like what this request, like what cassette goes to this request, I think it's just URL and method. Okay. I'll have to look more into that. But then the kind of cool thing is that if you don't have a cassette, it actually hits the network, records the JSON response, dumps it into a file on disk. And crashes. And crashes. <laughs> with, a, with a message. That's right. Like, throws an assertion. Throws an exception, really, right? Probably an NS, NS. It's probably a fatal, fatal error or I don't know. But it crashes, it stops the tests, and then tells you, hey, you need to add this project, this file to your project. Right. And I actually like bundle. that it's not trying to get too fancy. It just dumps it on your desktop. Yeah. It's just like, do something with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah cool. That's Perfect. Right. Yeah, I think it's cool. I, I, like, I love the dependency injection thing. I think, ideally, we'd have more control. Because we, you know, we have a lot of experience with this kind of stuff on the website. And so I was talking to one of our developers in san francisco jake craig mm-hmm. is that how you say his last name craig 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 i don't know craig whatever jake in san francisco um it was just like you know i think our web team has moved away from like vcr in fact i asked goose about it and goose was like oh yeah i hate vcr <laughs> so so they moved away from vcr and he was showing me this example of like from hound actually where it's like they have a stub repo request method and it takes a repo name and a token. And so then it performs this, you know, stub request get for this URL with these headers to return this status, this body, these headers, right? So you can configure this. And what it lets you do is it lets you really, it lets you be more dynamic. So like the URL that you're hitting and the, headers that you're returning are determined by the method that you told it to yep do right and that's really nice i feel like a mesh of those two would be awesome where you could say like you know instead of just returning a so this this pulls json off disk but instead of just saying like just this cassette name being able to pass in a session that's pre-configured to say like stub this request that has these headers with this status, this body, mm-hmm. you know, and these return headers. I had thrown the idea out to him about setting up some some sort of like cron task that would create new cassettes off mm. of your API every day. Oh, yeah. And then like every day you would just pull the latest cassettes and run your tests. And then if the API has changed in a way that's going to break the client's like say deserialization of some model object, yeah. you would know immediately. Immediately, yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting. You could do that with CI, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sure you could set up Xcode Server to just to run some that. scheme in some project that mm-hmm. just knows how to just hit the API and build, make a bunch of cassettes and then just copy them mm-hmm. somewhere and push it up to Git. So I think VCR does something like that. I think you can just put it in record mode where it doesn't stop the tests. It just puts them in the right, puts the files in the right. So it's a little more clever, it, right? Right. I, I'm not even sure that's really possible like during a test run right in xcode though right because they need to be in the bundle right and the tests are already running on a like a compiled bundle right like it's too late but you could run it once in record mode and then dump the whatever yep no 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 no. no. i get it it's like a pre-task do it and then run the tests but it probably doesn't need to be that up to date that's what i was thinking it's like Mm -hmm. or you get it triggered like whenever the server deploys 
you trigger it to just rebuild all your cassettes somewhere, and it's just a shared dependency. And we like, did talk at one point about trying to do that, right? Where yep. like the server team had API specs, and so they were asserting that their requests for this JSON looked like this. And then at the same time, we were asserting that requests for this JSON – so they were using those stubs as, like, validate the output, and we were using those stubs as, like, validate – from this input so given this input you know what i mean so we were both validating against we were both using creating and using these same stubs but we're just kind of like crossing past each other right like we never we never used a shared set of stubs what would be awesome is if there was a central place that you could like the web team would write specs for their api Mm -hmm. that would export json responses Mm -hmm. to a central location Mm -hmm. and then we instead of maintaining our own stubs we could pull those like there would be some synchronization you you keep saying stubs you mean fixtures right sure yeah yeah yeah. okay no i think yeah i want to make sure yeah yeah fixtures yeah like making sure that when when they receive a request to this that they're rendering this and it matches Mm -hmm. and that when we make a request and get a response Mm -hmm. it's the same thing Mm mm-hmm because otherwise, like, I felt like that kept happening on the project. Like, they would make a change, not a huge change, and but, then not, but, yeah, but our not. deserializers would right. just fall apart. And it happened a lot on one of my first projects, too, where it was like, our stubs are correct, our all of our tests are passing, and then on staging, all of a sudden, things are going wrong. It's like, what's, what's happening? Oh, this, they changed this thing in the API. We need to update that. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. I had my review today, so I was talking to Joe. Um, and he asked what, like, what was one of my goals for this quarter? Like, what would I like to work on for this next quarter? And I specifically said that, like, I've been having this thought recently that testing for me has been like this start stop thing. Like I've just keep, I get into it in fits and then I back off of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I first got here, I was like, oh, the thought bot way is to do testing. I should learn how to do this right and i was already interested in so i started learning how to do it and i got a little bit into it and then i kind of fell out of it a little bit and then i got this my first client here and i was i was with them for like a year and they did a lot of testing and that was great because i got to explore a lot of stuff and they did ui level testing through kiff and unit level testing through kiwi so i got to learn a lot about that Um, but the way that they were testing was really exhaustive, but I didn't feel like was necessarily the right way. You mean that it didn't need to be that exhaustive? I yeah, I felt like they were testing too much, which is weird. But like I, I, I think, and I don't think it was. I don't think it was a problem. Their testing practices. I think they were right. Which their their thought was, we just need to test all the logic. But it's a traditional MVC app, so a lot of logic. Well, it's a traditional iOS MVC app, so a lot of the logic ends up being in the view controllers and mm-hmm. the view level. And those are just pain to test. And so I hated testing them, right? They were just a pain to set up and they were a pain to stub out all the crap that they need to touch. And they were, they were annoying to deal with. And so that bothered me. And I thought I, it, was, it was unclear to me what the border was between UI level testing and uh, so like integration tests versus unit tests. Basically, everything was doubled. Which is everything. what happens when everything's in the view controller. Right, right. Because everything everything was tested twice. Everything was tested at the unit level and then again at the integration level. And we had these, like, 
long. Like, it took five minutes to run the UI tests, which was fine. I think that's fine. But it was all kind of in one big... No, it wasn't because it was first KIF. So it was like a duplicate framework. There were other issues at that point because KIF. But so, like, I was really into it then, but I felt like I, I didn't... I didn't. It didn't click with me. Like, I saw the the benefit to testing, but I didn't see... I didn't feel like that was the way to test, right? And then I rolled off that project. I kind of was off project for a while. And there were a couple projects that came and it was like, well, we could test this, but we didn't really get as far into it as maybe we should have. And then and then those projects went away. And, and then, you know, the project that we worked on together, what, a year ago, where it was like, Let's do this full blown TDD test everything. This you know MVVM, and that felt awesome. <laughs> that felt really really awesome. But it did feel like there was this big missing piece. One, we were trying to figure out MVVM. I think we've evolved past that at this point, past yeah. that kind of iteration of how we were doing it, which we can talk about it in a different episode probably. Yeah. But um, we were trying to figure out MVVM. So sometimes the border is blurred. Like we had this, I think, I think our, our main rule, which I still think is a good rule is don't test views, not at the unit level. Don't test views. And that includes view controllers. Don't test them at the unit level. That's not necessarily because the, the benefit to saying very cleanly, don't test at the view level is that it forces you to pull logic out in order to test it. Like one of the differences between that project and this last project I rolled off on where they were, it was a, more of an MVC and they had very blurry lines between what was supposed to be tested and what wasn't was that in that project that we were on, it was very clear to me in code review, you can immediately see this is logic. It's in a view controller. So I know it isn't tested. Mm-hmm. Can we pull it? out into like a view model or another thing so that we can test it. Once you do that, your, your view controllers get tiny because they end up being, most methods end up being like one or two lines. You're just passing, you know, passing things through or gluing two things together. Yep. And exactly what a controller is supposed to do. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And all of your model objects, everything that isn't at the view level becomes decoupled and easily tested. Like all of those view models, even the ones that were huge, like we had one that was like 200 lines and that was huge. In that yeah. Project. I like how, how we so call good. that huge, yeah, like 200 lines I is know, a massive this, view this, model. <laughs> yeah. But it was that for that, for that project, it was the biggest, the biggest class in the entire app was the post detail oh, view yep. model. Yep. And it was like 210 lines or something like that. But it was by far the biggest, and then the view controller was 150 or something. So it was the biggest view controller and the biggest view model by far. But even that, like, had we wanted to break up that view model, we could have into multiple smaller things that then passed stuff through some larger thing, you know. So we could have broken it up, broken it up further because nothing was coupled to anything at all. Yep. But so then after I rolled off that one. Like that felt good, but I still wanted the UI testing. After since I since that I haven't done a whole lot of testing, right? And on my last project, like I said, it was kind of blurry where the line was, where what I should be testing, what I shouldn't be testing. And so now we started this new project today, and I'm excited to go back in and like really 
one, it's all in Swift again, so that's good because um, I haven't done a whole lot of testing in Swift. So doing all the testing in Swift and, and starting over and really trying to get back into testing and to kind of try to level, keep getting better at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Going back to that project that we worked on, I still consider that some of the best work that I've ever done. Me too. I don't keep any thing that I did at yeah. ThoughtBot on my machine, especially this is this is a new laptop, right? <laughs> yeah. But I have that project <laughs> yeah. on this yeah. machine. It's like, I'm wondering, like, how did I do that? Like, right. I will open that project, like, once a week yeah. and jump in there and be like, oh, right, yeah, like, that's how we did that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm stealing I do, that. I do the exact, I seriously do the exact same thing. I have that project. I keep most of my clients because every now and then there's a reason to jump back in or do whatever. But I, I have that project on my machine, too, and I refer back to it constantly i'm like oh we ran into this already i wish i had access to the repo still because i want to know if they're keeping it up or if it's just devolved into just this horrible shit show yeah i have no idea i don't have access either i kind of don't want to know i kind of like it as we left it it's like pristine (laughs) it's a beautiful time spoiled i feel like you know you're doing it right when it's like in all your directories like models controllers views view models view controllers the most things you have are controllers i feel like that's how you know yeah you're headed in the right direction because it's a lot of glue code or or just because it's like you're exposing a lot of behavior on like a public edge mm. instead of having it locked away inside oh, you of mean other having, things having a bunch of controllers as opposed to having a bunch of it's just having controllers. a large number of controller files mm-hmm. like kind of tells me that you're doing it right mm-hmm. Like, behavior should be... Or like models. I mean, like, if you break in... I mean, sometimes that line blurs, right? Like, you're kind of just picking a name for a thing. But, like, I think the point for me is just not having, you know, one view controller per file, per view, and then just, like, a shitload of other controllers and a shitload of other models. Yeah, because it's not all locked up internally. Right. And, right. And, and it can be tested. Yeah. Right. And... All of that, all of that work that like controllers and view models are doing to transform model data up into something that the view can receive. Mm-hmm. Like I look at all of that as like an iceberg, and what you see sticking out of the water is like just what the view controller would see. Like just, but ninety percent of it is below the water, and yeah. that's like the water line is like the separation between views and view controllers and mm-hmm. controllers, models and view models. Like, yeah. I think that's a pretty good metaphor. It's just like. Yeah. All this work is going on down here, but you don't see it just to kind of like get to the this tiny little point that like sticks up. It's like that's right. all the view controller needs. Right. Yep. It's just to see exactly what it needs to plug into this view yep. right now. Yeah. But the key being that that iceberg isn't like one big class, right? Like you don't have a gigantic class with a tiny interface. There's a thing called yeah. iceberg classes. Do you know that? No, I've never heard that. There's a thing called iceberg classes. So there's a thing called iceberg classes, which I think Caleb wrote a blog post on it. Um, yep, here it is. <laughs> there's a thing called iceberg classes, which is like a gigantic monolithic class with a tiny, tiny interface, right? So you have all these private, the idea being that you have a, sh- uh, a shit ton of private methods, you know, mm-hmm. and then only a few public ones. The problem there is that those end up being hard to test. Like they're not yeah. necessarily bad, but it's, it's a sign of a possible smell because, because you don't like it's the same metaphor you're making just in a slightly different context, which is that like, if you have an iceberg class, it doesn't have a lot of public 
yeah there's a lot going on that's not exposed to the air right and and what i'm yeah what i'm talking about is like instead of a class the iceberg is a composition of all these different things working together and the view model is kind of what sticks out Mm -hmm. and like sticks up into the view controller and says like hey here's some strings and crap to like put in your view yeah but you have all these controllers working together taking different models they know about different things and it's all tested yeah we should revisit mvvm on the show i want to chat with you about that absolutely there are some issues on tropos where they were asking for clarification as to why we were using controllers like we were right and i i keep meaning to respond yeah on I think there. Tony Tony wrote a pretty good response. I think he did, I, and so I, did Jake. They both like touched on two things, but I, I'm going to come in there and be like, okay, but here's the historical reason, and yes. here's examples of like why we we tried to do this all in a view model, and we yeah. thought that it sucked. Yeah, I was kind of waiting for you to respond, and then Tony responded. I was like, that's pretty close to my understanding. But um, did we even talk about the fact that we open source Tropos? No, I don't no. think it ever came up. So we open source Tropos. <laughs> yeah. So Tropos is our weather app that Mark wrote right before he left us. Um, mm-hmm. So so Tropos is our weather app, and it's all in Reactive Cocoa. It's using MVVM. And it's been on the store for a month, maybe? Maybe longer? Yeah, uh, yeah, a couple something, months. Yeah, something like that? Yep. Um, so it's been on the store for a month or two, and last week we open-sourced it. It was actually open-sourced for a little while, and then we closed it again, and then cleaned it up a little bit and then I just reopened it. Um, but so we open sourced the repo, we open source and we also open sourced the Trello board, which I think is really cool and not something that I like we haven't done that before. We have apps that are open source, like Hound um what else? Is Formkeep open no, source? I think that's just a Upcase is open source, but only to subscribers. Anyway, we have some other apps that are open source, but I don't think we've ever open sourced the planning, like the Trello board behind it. So so Tropos is open source. The the Trello board where we're planning and talking about future developments on Tropos is also open sourced. I think it's definitely worth checking out. Right now, there's some work going on, actually from an external con- contributor to start moving stuff over to Swift. So his idea was to start with the model objects, right? Because they are Perfect. they're decoupled from Reactive Cocoa is, where, is, is what mm-hmm. made sense, right? These are things that don't touch Reactive Cocoa. We can just transform them into Swift objects, and that'll start the process. So. Even, even the view models are decoupled from Reactive Cocoa and Tropos. Are they? Literally, all Reactive Cocoa code lives inside of controllers, controllers and there's a little bit of, like, rack binding, binding macro stuff, usage in the yeah. view controllers but otherwise all the signal chaining is going on inside a controller object guaranteed and then view models are just passing those through view models are really like just transformers like yeah they're they're just responsible for just transforming values that get sent along on like signal chains from cool. the controller into the view controller yeah i think it's an interesting architecture i really do i, I think it's a, i think it's a pretty cool architecture it's by default, the most reactive code that we have and that we have ever written as a company because it's almost the entirety of the reactive code. Like, it's almost the only thing that we've done fully yeah. reactive like that. But I think it's an interesting thing. So so we're moving it to Swift. We want to try moving it to reactive Cocoa 3. The timing of when to do that or whether to do that at all mm-hmm. is up in the air. Because we'd had a conversation about, like, 
well, do we move it to Reactor Coco 3 or do we just leave it as pure Swift and try to use did set and stuff like that yeah. and maybe like a bindings? This has always been like a like an architecture playground for me. Totally. And so I kind of want to try it without Reactive Coco this time. Like I feel like I scratched that itch. See, I think it's I think it's interesting. One of the main reasons it is interesting is because of the reactive coco stuff. I don't want to go on yeah. a tangent talking about tropos. But like I come back and I look at it and I'm like, I have to spend way too much time remembering why I did it this way, and that's a bad sign to me. Yeah, maybe. It just doesn't May- sit right. Maybe, but I think I, I in in so playing devil's advocate here, because I do think that that's a problem with reactive coco code in general. That's also a problem with functional code. It's a problem with kind of any code of reasonable complexity i think that one of the reasons that you feel that way is because you aren't writing reactive coco code every day right i think that if this was just your norm then you'd be fine same thing is with fp stuff you know yeah i I think any of that stuff like anything that's kind of outside the norm you really have to stay on top of it in order to keep yourself used to reading it agreed I think there's also something specifically about the Objective-C implementation of Rx in Reactive Coco that doesn't help anything because, no. you know, um, Untyped our, signals. our Android app uses RxJava yeah. everywhere, and they just happily yeah. keep writing more RxJava code, and it's right. fine. Like, there's just something about Objective-C Reactive Coco where it's like I really have to squint and look so, at it and be like, what the uh, do you see? Did you see doing? Justin Sparsummer's... He called it the reactive Coco stateless of the union. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> it's good. But he talks about this. He talks about he talks about the deficiencies in the in the this is gonna turn into a long ass podcast. But he, he talks about like the deficiencies in the objective C in Rack two versus the improvements he's able to make, they were able to make in Rack three. And a lot of it comes down to same thing you're saying. Like I think I honestly think it almost entirely comes down to types. That could be. I think it, I think it's untyped signals. The fact that everything's just a rack signal, who knows what's in there, right? Mm-hmm. No idea. So then you have to you know use what essentially boils down to like Hungarian notation in your method or or property names or you just have to know. You have to have in inherent knowledge of what it, what a signal returns or you have to use like arcane naming practices to know what a method what a signal returns. Yeah. Versus all that clears up immediately once you have typed signals, sig- generic signals, signals with a with a contained type. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's this hot and cold. The fact that everything's a signal, the hot and cold signal thing is very confusing. Yes. And I only know enough about it to know that it's very confusing. And so splitting that up into signals and signal producers cleans Definitely up. helps, yeah. So again, I do think that there, there are problems with reactive Coca 2. I think that those problems are mitigated by living in it, which is whatever, you know. I mean, if you don't like it, then you shouldn't be living in it, and so then you don't have a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then it's kind of doesn't matter. But I think it, it's mitigated by living in it, and then I also think it's going to be mitigated more by Reactive Cocoa 3. That could certainly be the case, because I've, I've kind of jumped into um, Carthage a few times just to look around, and I feel like I can, I can grok what's happening in Carthage a lot better than I can if I go look at OctoKit yeah, or something. which is Reactive Coco 2, yeah. In Objective-C. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but yeah. it's just... I think it's types, man. Yeah. It's all types. That's probably it. should probably wrap it up. I feel like we're at 40 minutes. Cool. 
Show notes for this episode are be found at buildphase.fm slash 87. And as always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase, and we always appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right. Good show. Yeah. All right. See you. Later. <laughs>